Before I start, let's pray one more time. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we love you and we thank you for this day. We've come into this place this morning from um, any number of of different challenges that we've had throughout the week. And we look around and we see that there are many who, um, either because of illness or because of just the events of life, can't be with us this morning. And we recognize that just because we're here doesn't mean we're doing great. So we want to lift up to you all of our hearts this morning. Those in this room and those who are um, either watching from home or not able to, to participate at all. We just pray that you would help us to make the most of the time. The days are evil and uh, none of us are getting stronger and healthier um, apart from your grace and your kindness. So we pray that you would help us to be a humble and loving people, a people who are engaged in helping one another and, and in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, so that we would have the opportunity to convey the most important thing, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified that all of humanity that is perishing might come to salvation and eternal life. This morning, Lord, as we look into this epistle, we need your help, Holy Spirit, to, to see and to understand what it is that you're trying to teach us and what it is that we need to know that our lives might be changed, that, uh, that our hearts might be strengthened to do what you've commanded us to do in a way that brings glory and honor to you. So would you help us now as we look into James 1, um, be in our hearts and minds, help us to focus, put me aside and speak to us, Lord, because we're listening. We pray for this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. The last time we were together, which was not last week, but two weeks ago, we, um, we took a detailed look at verses two, three, and four. And I tried to make the case that trials have a distinct way of letting us know how powerless we really are. Um, And I tried to do that by looking at this idea of letting steadfastness have its full effect. Um, God is interested, I'm sure you all agree, in reorienting us away from confidence in and love of ourselves to confidence in and love for Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay, lots of head nods. Um, In Galatians 2.20, which we saw a few months back, Paul writes and he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith because, he said, it's no longer I who live. When you were saved from sin, if you're a believer, when you were saved from sin, some some critical things 
had to be realized by you. The, 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 you must have agreed that these things are true. Near the top of the list, every person who has truly come to faith in Jesus would say, that man, Jesus Christ, is infinitely more valuable and worthy than I am. That has to be your experience or you haven't come to faith. You've come to something else. So if your estimation of Christ has not gone way, way up and your estimation of yourself has not come down substantially, I'm not sure that you know the risen Savior. If I say Jesus is infinitely more valuable than I am, part of what I'm saying is that he is infinitely more worthy of God's affection than I am. The Son of God is worthy of God's affection. I am not left to myself. When we're saved from sin, part of what must be present is the recognition of our own unworthiness, right? I can't please God. I can't be consistently righteous. I can't even refrain consistently from things that I know are evil. Amen? All right? So we recognize that these two truths exist in symbiosis. Truth number one, he is wonderful. Truth number two, I am not. Are we good? I'm not trying to be, you know, get us all on a self-deprecating track where we imagine that we're more foul than we are, but someone who doesn't see those two truths cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ. And generally, there is a rejection of both. I am wonderful. God is not is the position of the lost man left to himself. So Paul, having come to faith on the road to Damascus, calls that experience of coming to faith, Paul calls it his own death. I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live. It's Jesus Christ who lives. This is a gospel summary. My garbage has come to an end. My nonsense has ceased. My worship of myself has stopped and my worship of God has begun. It's a gospel summary. A huge part of the reason people reject the gospel is because they simply disagree with that gospel implication. I'm wonderful. They may not go so far as to say God is not, but what they don't know that we do is if you say you are wonderful, part of what you're saying is God's not. So ecumenical modern New Age Christianity has been searching for a way to eliminate the self-death piece from the gospel. That's what I think. That's, that's what I see happening. God is wonderful, and you are too. That's, that's a more modern take on Christianity. Or you're wonderful, and God can make you even more wonderful. Or God is wonderful and sees how wonderful you are. Rather than bringing about the death of self, these false gospels seek to imply that Jesus came to enhance your life, increase your self-esteem, or monetarily enrich you. I've just said God is interested, you must agree, in reorienting us away from confidence in and worship of ourselves. And I think that I argue this from a realistic position. 
Life is full of immense pain, profound disappointment, and most of those things are completely out of our control. Amen? If I've been taught to believe that God exists to enhance my life rather than be the focus of my life, or if I've been taught that God is indifferent to sin and just loves everyone, or if I have believed that because I prayed the sinner's prayer once years and years and years ago, but I find myself in a horrific circumstance. Are you tracking with me? I've been taught to believe that God exists to enhance my life or increase my self-esteem, or I've been taught that God is indifferent to sin. It doesn't really bother him that much. He loves you just like you are, which there's a measure of truth to that statement. Or I have believed that because I prayed some prayer years ago, I should be fine. And then, with all of those wrong belief systems in my head, I enter into some horror show in this life, I must then conclude one of two things, okay? God is not good or God is not powerful because he's supposed to be enhancing my life. He supposedly loves me more than anything else that ever existed because of how wonderful I am and my life is horrible. He's either not good or he's not powerful. However, if I dial in instead with my earlier statement, that man, Jesus, is infinitely more worthy of God's affection than I am, and then I find myself in a horrific circumstance, I can conclude something different. So now I've got a high view of Jesus and a low view of myself, I can conclude something other than God's not powerful or God's not loving just because my life is a horror show. Now I can conclude I deserve this and it's God's judgment and it's punitive and he hates me and who can blame him? That's puritanical legalistic religion. And those are the three, I think, common mistakes of modern thought on suffering. God's not powerful or he wouldn't allow me to go through this because he loves me so much. He must not be able to stop it. God's not good or he would recognize that what I'm going through is horrible and he should bring an end to it. Or I deserve this and my suffering is punitive. Thus, the more I suffer, the more worthy I become. Those are the three errors I see. They're all wrong. So what I tried to show you all last time was this. When we die, when we die, we will either depend on Jesus' work, Jesus' love, and God's pleasure in Jesus Christ to deliver us safely into the life to come, or when we die, we will die eternally. We will be equipped with a body capable of suffering forever. Those are the choices. Trials are a glimpse at that death. The reason that James says we should count it all joy when we are suffering and the reason that James says we should let steadfastness have its perfect result is that when we suffer, we are being given a peek at how helpless we truly are. Amen? Suffering and trial are opportunities for us to stop and realize just how much we depend on God for every breath. Now, I'm fresh off of uh, a week of some pretty awful sickness, and I'm sure that many of you have had a similar experience, so it, it, it's therefore fresh in my head. 
when God is done sustaining me, I will be done living. I get that. It's fresh. Give me six months and let's see if I'm not a little more cocky than I am right now. Because we tend in this direction of self-confidence. We tend in this direction of, I can do it. I got it. Look how strong I am. I've been working out. My VO2 max is at whatever. Uh, I've been eating lots of blueberries and spinach, so it's going to be fine. But this thing happens where God brings into your life some difficulty, some suffering in order to make you depend on him again and drive you away from self-worship into his arms so that we have the experience of relationship afresh. That's what I'm trying to convince us of. Taking hold of these truths requires wisdom. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Testing makes your faith a better, more useful faith. Agreed? That's what he said, so I hope you agree. Steadfastness has an effect too. It makes you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the more quickly you run by faith to the throne of grace, the less you lack. Let me say that again. The more quickly you run by faith to the throne of grace, the less you lack. The more quickly you cast your sins at the foot of the cross, the more you are complete and whole. So let's be honest with ourselves and with one another, if you choose to say so out loud. Don't we kind of long to be whole? Isn't there a part of you that's kind of tired of being spongy and squishy? And you'd like to be intact and a whole person and less fundamentally flawed. Trials test faith. Oh, sorry, I'll calm down, Jude. (laughs) Trials test faith. Tested faith is stronger faith. Stronger faith makes us more steadfast. But the fact is, when we are hurting, we struggle to remember these things, right? I'm in pain right now. I can't remember everything that I used to know about what trials are accomplishing in my life. All I can remember right now is, I'm hurting, this is terrible, So James is going to address that too. Verse 5, James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay. In the midst of a trial, what does wisdom offer? What do I have in a trial if I have wisdom? So I'm in, the, in difficulty, in a, in a great struggle, in great heartache or profound loss. What does wisdom give me that I don't have without wisdom? I think... It gives us the things that I talked about we need to do when we're viewing a trial, when we're counting the trial, when we're considering the trial and trying to consider it joy. I said, remember, human senses, the five that I know of, are are present things. They are for detecting what is. What do I hear? What do I see? What do I taste? What can I touch? What do I smell? Those are present things. 
So if you judge your trial with present human senses, you're probably going to judge it incorrectly. So I said, step one, don't evaluate the trial with only your human senses. If when I suffer, I fixate on the pain, the lack of anything good in my life in that moment, the lack of anything to view or feel hopeful for, the lack of any good word from a preacher or a mentor because I can't get a hold of anybody. If I fixate on those things, I will certainly misunderstand the purpose of the trial. So wisdom offers us the ability to judge by a supernatural light. Remember, my trial is not God's judgment. This is not God's way of letting me know that he's finally fed up with me, had enough of me, and has written my name down, and then erased it from the book of life. That's not what the trial is about. The trial is about the improvement of my faith, not the eradication of my existence, right? So wisdom gives me the opportunity and the ability to judge by a supernatural light. That was two. Third, wisdom offers us the ability to judge on supernatural grounds. The value of a sorrow and the possible outcomes of a sorrow change when death is not the final chapter. So we see an empty cross, we see a vacant tomb, and we know whatever I'm going through, even if I die because of it, that's not the end. God's power goes beyond anything in this life. Wisdom keeps that in my mind in the midst of a trial. The ability to properly value the trial, the ability to properly count, comes from having wisdom. How do I know If I lack wisdom then, because he says in verse five, hey, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. Well, how do I know if I lack wisdom? James says, if you lack wisdom, I want to know how would I know? Well, I think we all do. I think he's being polite. The reality is you're in a trial. You know what you lack? You lack wisdom. You know what you need? You need wisdom. But just in case you're not sure, the next time you're in a trial, ask yourself a couple of questions. What do I think about this trial? Am I enjoying this trial? Is there joy in existence alongside my sorrow in the midst of this trial? Or is it all sorrow? Is it all hopelessness? Is it all pain? Is my heart just full of fear over what's going to happen next? If there is only sorrow, you lack wisdom. You need wisdom. What if it's not enough joy? Like there's joy there, but man, it is subdued under a mountain of anxiety and fearfulness or hopelessness. Well, there, all right, so there's a little, you're saying there's a little bit of joy, but there needs to be more of it. Well, guess what? You lack wisdom. You need wisdom so that you can properly count the trial. Great news. James says, if you lack wisdom, which we almost certainly do, here's what you do. You ask God for it, and he gives it generously. The confession of need to God never produces reluctance or reviling from God. I'm going to say that again, and I'll say it a half dozen more times before I get through this sermon. The confession of need to God never produces reluctance or reviling from God. So when you say, I need something, 
God does not revile you and he is not reluctant to give you what you need. As humans, we struggle here. So we assume that God struggles too. When someone asks us for something and they are asking from a position of obvious weakness, feel free to pretend like I'm the only one, okay? When somebody asks for something and they're asking from a position of obvious weakness, a miserly spirit rises up in us. To prove it, unless you are the proud parent of only a six-month-old and haven't been through the experience of having kids offend you over and over and over again in the same way, like most of us, what happens in your heart the thousandth time the child comes having transgressed and says, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? Well, if you're a gracious, loving Christian parent, you know what the right thing is to do and you love the kid. So you say, I forgive you. But this, the, the thousand and tenth time, you tend to say it through gritted teeth. I forgive you. And it's the thousand, one hundredth and tenth time, it's really hard to say it at all. So you begin to add Little caveats like, let this be the last time I have to forgive you for this. Because when somebody comes to us in a position of obvious weakness and asks us for something, a miserly spirit tends to rise up in our hearts. We can't help it. Come on, you spent all your life before you were a Christian thinking you were God. And somebody needing something from you is like a little glimmer of that old person before Jesus. God isn't like that. When someone asks us for something, they're asking from a position of obvious weakness. It does not cause a miserly spirit to rise inside of God. When we're doing well and life is going smoothly, sinners tend to pay less attention to God. We think we don't need him. We think we're doing fine. Suddenly, we find ourselves in a trial. Bodily illness or injury, a relationship problem, a friend isn't behaving the same way toward us, or worse, our spouse or partner isn't behaving in the right way toward us. A kid is going wild, or you have some sudden financial stress. The trial, whatever it is, grips us, and immediately we are humbled. Not doing so great after all, are we? The minute the trial comes up, whoa, what is this? I'm not terrific anymore. You need some help from God, right? The minute the trial comes up, if you're a believer, you know what I need is help from God. This is terrible. I don't like it. I'm not sure what to even do right this minute. I don't even know how to feel about it right this minute because I vaguely remember James saying something about joy should coexist along with sorrow. Right now, it's just sorrow and I, I need God. But unfortunately, you haven't prayed in two or three days or two or three weeks, or two or three months, or two or three years. Now, now, it would make our desperate, I'm in a trial and need help prayers, more authentic if we had been praying right up along the way, wouldn't it? So we imagine God hearing our prayer and saying something like, oh, now you want to talk. 
Now you want, now you want to pay some attention to me. Now you need my help. Now you're a humble little child, right? This is why I'm arguing week in and week out with us that the gospel is about relationship. When we fail to tend our relationship with God through the means that he's appointed, which I think pretty simply, we have scripture to hear from him. We have prayer to pour our hearts out to him. We have fellowship with the other saints to just get a sense of the encouragement that comes from the Holy Spirit. When we fail to tend the means of grace, we set ourselves up for a double dose of heartache when difficulties come. Isn't it so much easier to cry out to God the instant trouble happens when you've been spending time with him all along the way? Some of you are like, I wouldn't know what that's like. That's okay, keep listening. The good news is God isn't miserly. So let me say what I said earlier. The confession of need to God never produces reluctance or reviling from God. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Now, let's look at a scripture that says something different. Matthew 15. Matthew 15, uh, 21 appears to oppose my statement that the confession of need to God never produces reluctance or reviling from God. Because what you have here is an example. It looks like that's precisely what a confession of need produces. Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. He did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Reluctance? He wouldn't answer her? Reviling. He just called her a dog, if she chooses to interpret it that way. 27. She said, yep. Yep. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Isn't that reluctance? He ignored her. Isn't that reviling? He said, no, 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 this food is for the children. You aren't even a Jew, lady. And as admirable as it is that a Canaanite woman calls Jesus the son of David, who was like the enemy of the Canaanites, she's no Jew. He didn't come initially for Gentiles. So what does she do? He's reluctant. He insinuates that she's a dog. She argues with him, right? I mean, it's not a trick question. She does. She pushes back. But note, she doesn't argue her worthiness. She doesn't say, whoa, whoa, you, you've misunderstood. I am a Jew, recently converted. <laughs> she argues 
her unworthiness. Yeah, yeah. Even, but even the dogs get, get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I am one. That's all I am. I'm asking for crumbs, Jesus. You don't have to give me the first fruits of your feast. Just give me crumbs. She argues her poverty. She argues her desperate need. And what does Jesus do? He marvels at her faith. There are two things that I can find in my Bible that Jesus marvels at. Belief and unbelief. Perfect example. She persists because she knows there's no other hope that she has for her little girl than this man, the son of David, Jesus Christ. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, well, how many of us are a little troubled by what James says here? Ask in faith with no doubting. Oh, and has this passage ever been... twisted to confuse the already brokenhearted. You don't have enough faith. That's why God's not answering you. What? You're doubting God. You shouldn't expect to receive anything. No, 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 no. It does not make you double-minded that you struggle to believe God would do something for you. That's not what makes you double-minded. You know who the double-minded person is? The person who isn't totally convinced that they need something from God. That's the double-minded. The person who testifies about how through personal grit and a tough mind and a great work ethic, they got where they are. You fool. All God had to do is bless you with spina bifida. You would be nowhere. All he would have to do is give you a sinus infection that spread into your brain and you would be off this earth. All you would have to do is any one of the thousands of times you've gone up and down the stairs, have you slip, fall, and break your neck, and you'd be all done. Tough, grit, personal, pull myself up by the bootstrap. What a bunch of nonsense. That's a double-minded person. They believe they have gotten what they have through their own power. This is the person who gives the unsolicited tech talks about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is the person who posts trite, inspirational quotes on social media about hustle and ignoring the haters and going to the gym when, you know, their hustle is their business started out of a trust fund. Everybody loves them and their body's the result of a lot of plastic surgery. That's a double-minded person. I am pretending I'm something when I'm nothing. Well, welcome to America in 2022. That's everybody. That's me on my worst days, losing sight of all the kindness and goodness of God in my life that has enabled me to have three, not two, not one, and not zero, but three living, healthy children who are all in their teens. How is that possible? Well, James, you're a great dad. You did it right. You homeschooled them early. No! (laughs) It's the kindness of God. The Canaanite woman throws herself at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus ignores her. She pleads for help. 
and he doesn't respond. She pleads louder. He points out she's not a Jew. She lacks the religious credentials. She points out she's not asking from a position of strength, but profound weakness and desperate need, and Jesus marvels at her faith. What was marvelous about her faith is she had reached the point where she had nowhere else to turn for hope. She'd probably tried everything else already. Like, I kind of, I'm not, I wasn't there. I can't say this with any confidence, but she's a Canaanite woman. I'm pretty sure she probably went to Dagon, the fish god, first. And that didn't give her the results she needed. It was her last resort. You don't go to Jesus, call him the son of David, and humiliate yourself like that unless you're pretty sure you have no other hope. It's not as if she didn't doubt. Oh, she doubted. She knew she was a dog. She knew she had no business asking. She knew he had every reason to refuse her. She knew her poverty. If Jesus can't or won't help her, she has no doubt that she's doomed. That's what James means. Ask in faith without any doubting. Nobody else can help me. You know how many times I've prayed, God, you have all the money because I'm in financial distress. How many times I've prayed, God, you are the great physician because my kids are sick. How many times I've prayed, God, please let this car start. It's just that you get to the place where you're like, unless the Lord builds a house, the labor is labor in vain. I need him desperately all the time. How much more so in a moment of trial? When you just get lit up, all your expectations are going unmet. The confession of need to God never produces reluctance or reviling from God. When you're in the midst of a trial and you lack wisdom, you can't stop judging with human senses. You can't see in a supernatural light. You can't get to the place where you know death isn't the end of the story. You can't find an ounce of joy to exist alongside your sorrow. Listen, you lack wisdom. That's why you've missed the plot. That's why you can't get an ounce of hope fired up in your heart. What you need is wisdom. And what James is saying is, you need it, ask him for it. He'll give it to you. Your circumstances may not change, but your heart will. In fact, I would say your circumstances probably won't change. But your faith will be strengthened. You can take the height when you've got faith that's strong because it's in Jesus Christ and not your own might. And then steadfastness will have its perfect result. Jesus doesn't exist to enhance your life. He exists to be your life Amen. and your salvation. Let's pray.